All right, any Olympic fans in the house? All right, very cool. Yeah, I asked that at the 745 service, and it was like crickets. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is not going to be a good sermon. So, all right, good. So, as you guys probably know, Michael Phelps ended his illustrious career last night. Or at least we think he ended his illustrious career last night, his last race. Um, and it's very interesting the way that, because he retired four years ago, but, but the whole um, aura around his retirement four years ago is way different than who he was this, this past Olympics. And as you guys probably know, um, right after uh, he finished the Olympics and retired, he went into a pretty dark period of time about three years ago. And I was just doing a little bit of research on it. I thought it was a fascinating story. And I was reading an article, um, and, it, and it says, this coach said in the article, it says, he said to Michael, he said, Michael, Michael had no idea, no, I'm sorry. He says, Michael had no idea what to do with the rest of his life. He said, I remember one day I said, Michael, you have all the money that anyone your age could ever want or need. And you have profound influence in the world. And you have free time and you are the most miserable person that I know. What's up with that? He said, he literally said, what's up with that? Thanks, Bob Bellman. Um, and then the article continued by saying that Phelps had, had staked his entire identity on his swimming career, staying singularly focused on a goal and achieving wild success. Greatest Olympian of all time. But at the end of his career, he said that he was in such bad shape, it was such a dark time that he seriously considered ending his life. How can that be? How can, that be? how can it be that somebody that's so respected and so accomplished can be so empty? What I want to offer to you today is that lying at the root of our deepest insecurities, fears, and the deepest parts of our heart, and the deepest anxieties that we have, and the deepest relational brokenness, there is one root at the core of it all, and it's this question. What or who do you worship? What or who do you worship? What do you get your deepest significance from? Who do you draw your most, uh, your biggest significance and meaning from? Who is it? What is it? And the reality is, if you get the answer to that question right, it's like a wellspring of life that pours into every other aspect of your life. But if you get the answer to that question, who or what do you worship wrong, it becomes toxic for every single aspect of your life, every relationship that you have. And so today I want to explore this question and I want to do it by looking at one of the most shocking accounts in the entire Bible. In Genesis 22, so if you have your Bibles, open them up to Genesis 22, verse 1. Genesis 22, verse 1 is where we're going to be today. And I have two main points for the sermon. The first is the altar, and the second is the sacrifice. The altar and the sacrifice. So we're going to look at the altar first. In verse 1, you can read along. It says, God said to Abraham, God said to him, Abraham... And Abraham answered, here I am. And he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. 
He says, take your only son, because in the previous chapter, we saw that Ishmael and Hagar had just departed out of Abraham's life. And so, literally, Isaac is his only son. He is the heir of the promise. He is the one through whom blessing is supposed to come. And it not only says, take your son, but it says, take the son in whom you love. He really loves Isaac. And he says, so take him, go to the land of Moriah. Okay, we're going on a little, you know, road trip. And then it says, it continues on, when it says, go to Moriah, which, are there any Bible nerds in the house? Does anybody know what happens at Moriah? Yeah, so somebody said that as well. Before, before that, that's exactly where when God said, Solomon, I want you to build the temple where my people are gonna worship me, he said, build it on a mountain in Moriah. Interesting. So out of all the places in the whole promised land, this is the one spot that God sends Abraham and Isaac, and it's the one spot that he tells Solomon 1,100 years later, go and build the temple there. I want you to build it there. And then he continues on. So we got a road trip. We're going to a significant place. It says, take your only son to Moriah and offer them there as a burnt sacrifice on one of the mountains in which I shall tell you. What? This passage is utterly shocking. I've struggled with this passage for years. How can it be that God, the God that we know and love, would ask Abraham to sacrifice his only son? How could it be that he would do that? What kind of God would do that? Why would he do that? We'll get to this. So hold that question in your mind. So Abraham doesn't, God doesn't say, because this is what I'm going to do. This is how, Abraham says this. It says, Abraham rose early in the morning. So first thing in the morning, he gets up, saddles his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he sets out. He says, it cuts, he cut the wood of the burnt offering and went to the place that God had told him. And so Abraham is obedient. He follows him. On the third day, they arrive. And this is where the story begins to get heart-wrenching. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with your donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Took, took all that wood and laid it on Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife and they both went them together. It shows us how far that Abraham has come in his faith. You remember in the very beginning of the sermon series where he went down his, his first major test of faith. He goes down to Egypt and he's afraid of what's gonna happen. And so he tells him, hey, my wife is actually my sister and he gets him in all sorts of trouble and he fails fails miserably in his faith. But here we see Abraham doesn't know why God's asking him to do this, but he knows somehow, some way that God is good and that somehow God is gonna bring something out of this, that, that God is going to bring good out of this. He doesn't know why, but he trusts God's character. Do you see the difference there? Oftentimes, that's what aspects of our lives are like. We don't know why God's doing something but we know we can trust him. And so do we choose to trust him or do we do, choose to do it our own way? So Abraham says, okay, 
Let's go forward. And then we hear from Isaac for the first time. Isaac said to his father, my father, here I am. And Abraham says, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, Isaac says this, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? He says, I see everything here for a sacrifice, but where's the lamb? Now, it's important to remember, growing up, I always thought that Isaac was just a little baby. But he's actually, scholars think, probably a teenager, young teenager at the time. He's strong enough to be able to carry the wood. So what that means is that for Abraham to sacrifice his son, he's sacrificing someone he knows. They have all of these memories together. This is the son of Abraham's old age. And so how does Abraham respond to Isaac's innocent question? Abraham says this, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Abraham's faith doesn't waver. His trust in God is unflinching. Even though he doesn't know why, he trusts God's character. And then they went, both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abram reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. How can this be? Why? Why would God do this? Abraham lifted the knife to slaughter his son Now, if this was a movie, I want to freeze frame right here at this moment. And I want to go back, rewind all the way to the very beginning of the story. I skipped over it on purpose. In Genesis 22, verse 1, it says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, take your only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him. You see, it was a test. Now, we know that because we're the readers. Abraham didn't know that. So in case you were worried that God was like maniacal and crazy, he's not. He was never planning on letting Abraham sacrifice his son. If Abraham had failed his test, he wasn't going to to let Isaac be killed. He was setting up a test. So why a test and why in this way? Why would he give this kind of test? What is he testing? See, God was testing in a very intense way And he's asking Abraham in a very intense way one of the deepest questions that's raised in the human heart, which is this. What do you ultimately trust in, Abraham? What do you ultimately trust in? We know that Abraham had gained everything. He had flocks, he had riches, but he had lost everyone in his life at this point in the story. He had grown rich in possessions, but his relationships had grown scarce. He had already left behind his family and his country and his kindred in Ur years ago. And then we learn that Lot, after Abraham saves him from Sodom and Gomorrah, abandons, Lot abandons Abraham and goes to live in another city. He just in the last chapter lost Ishmael and Hagar. And in the very next chapter, Sarah is going to die. 
Here's the thing, God knew Abraham's heart. He knew that Abraham's temptation was to turn to trust in Isaac and set all of his hopes on this, his son, his last companion. You see, Isaac, he could protect me and provide for me in my old age. Isaac would be the promised son who would carry on the blessing. You see, all of Abraham's legacy and destiny was tied into this one son. In short, Isaac could have easily become Abraham's God. He could have become Abraham's idol, his provider and protector. Now, what is God here? Like a jealous boyfriend? Seems kind of like that, right? He's like, no, I want you to like me more than Isaac. Why does he require this? Why is he asking this question? The reality is that he knows that if Abraham shifts all of his meaning and significance onto Isaac, it actually would crush Isaac, wouldn't it? It would crush their relationship. If you grew up in a home in which your parents placed all of their significance, all of their hopes and dreams on you, you know that crushing feeling. And you know that that relationship is never a true relationship because your relationship with them is tied into your ability to become what they want you to be. And so for, not only for Abraham's sake, but also for Isaac's sake, God says, no, I won't let you do that to Isaac. So Abraham, as he's entering into his golden years, God has one final test, and he says, who do you ultimately trust in? What do you ultimately trust in, Abraham? Now, very few of us, if ever, this is an abnormal thing, uh, this kind of a test. So if you came to me after the service and is like, I think God's calling me to sacrifice my son, I would be like, no, I don't think he is, actually. Um, This is an abnormal test, and we're going to talk about why it's an abnormal test in a little bit. But all of us have tests in our daily lives as well as some bigger tests that happen over our lifespan where we're asked this question. What do I ultimately trust in? Where do I ultimately get my significance from? And the reality is whatever you place all of your significance and trust in is an idol. It's an idol. It's a a God with a small g for you. So what makes something an idol? Well, it's something that you worship, that you try to draw your significance from. Writer and pastor Tim Keller, you got, some of you guys are familiar with him, he defines idolatry as the temptation to take good things, good things like family, achievement, work and career, romance, talent, even gospel ministry, take those good things and turn them into ultimate things that you look for meaning and significance and joy from first and foremost. It's taking God's gift to you of family and turning it into a God that you worship. Now some of you guys might be saying, I don't buy it. Maybe I'm, I'm not a Christian, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in worship, somebody dragged me here, I don't buy it. I don't worship anything. You Christians, you worship your God. I don't worship anything. I want to offer to you a thought from 
he's a writer, essayist. This guy's not a committed Christian. He's actually dead now. Um, but a Pulitzer Prize finalist, um, David Foster Wallace, was at a commencement address addressing some college students. And he says this. And follow along with me. It's a little bit long of a quote, but here's something else that's weird but true, he says. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they never are, if you worship money and things, if they, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know that this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over those to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid a fraud and always on the verge of being found out. That's some wisdom, isn't it? What he's saying is that every single person worships something. Everyone worships something. Even if you're an atheist, you worship something. So the question then for us is, what do we do? Do we have idols? If so, what are they? How do we figure it out? See, you see, idolatry is different than just the normal sins that we think of. So when we think of sins, we think of the second half of the Ten Commandments, correct? Don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery, don't, do, don't murder, don't do those kinds of things. But idolatry, what I want to offer to you, all of those other things, those second half of the Ten Commandments, all are rooted in disobedience to the First Commandment. Does anybody know what the First Commandment is? Uh, uh, maybe. So it's, I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. If work is your God, then yeah, you'll lie in order to get ahead. If sex is your God, then yeah, you'll commit adultery. But if you're just worried about the outward thing, the lying, the adultery, you need to go deeper. Because behind every sin problem, there's an idolatry problem. There's a God that you are worshiping, whether you know it or not. It's the sin underneath the sin. It's hidden, it goes unnoticed, and oftentimes it's celebrated in our world. So I want for you to ask yourself, what might I be turning from a good thing that God's given me into an ultimate thing that I'm trying to draw ultimate meaning from? And I wanna throw up on the screen a little bit of uh, food for thought. 
All right, so I, I searched the, the, the internet for one of the greatest cathedrals in America, and this is what I found, this picture right here. You guys recognize that? Yeah, that's right, Grace Anglican Church, man. Um, <laughs> Fleming Island. Um, all right, so this, here's what I want to lay out for you. Now, look at all these things. These are all ultimately good things, but they can become ultimate things. They can become things we worship and we look for ultimate meaning from. So think about body image. Being healthy is good. Eating well is good. But if it becomes your ultimate thing, it can enslave you. That word, which there's lots of young ears in the room. I won't say it. You can read it. But I've already said it, though, so I don't know. <laughs> oh, well. Sorry, parents. Um, that is a good thing that God has given us as a gift, but it's something that if we worship it, if we look for ultimate meaning from it, it can absolutely enslave us and absolutely ruin our lives. Listen right here, stress relief through addiction. Wine is a good thing. We drink it every Sunday, but it can absolutely enslave you. Stress of work, stress of parenting, you know, I could deal with why I'm stressed out, but it'd be a lot easier to just not feel stressed out because I drink. What idols do you have in your heart? This is one for me right here. It's a problem for my family, and I've recognized that I find it a lot easier to not deal with the mess in my heart. Rather, I can just turn to this and feel better at the end of the day. And it doesn't have to be getting wasted and throwing up. It could be three or four beers instead of just one. Now, I'm not saying that God's calling you to give up beer. God forbid. Um, but he might. But he might. All right, so I'm going to keep going. Work as an identity. Your career. Your career. It's that, that thing that gives you meaning. And when you don't get the raise or you don't get the promotion, it crushes you. Especially men, but it's both men and women. It's an, an incredible increase of suicide among men in their retirement age because they've built their whole identity on their work and they have no longer have anything to work for. It's exactly what Michael Phelps fell into. He built his whole identity on his work of swimming and then he had nothing left to live for. Shopping for comfort and identity. Same as alcohol. I've had, a, I've had a bad week, and so I'm going to go buy something to make myself feel better. It's, it's not that bad, right? But it can absolutely ruin marriages. It can absolutely throw you into debt. It can absolutely destroy your ability to give your money away for the sake of good things. I'm going to jump down to security. On the other spectrum of that, you can be so tight-fisted with your money and say, I need this money as a comfort blanket in case something happens. And that can ruin your marriage because you won't let your husband or your spouse buy anything ever and you, and you lord it over them because you want that to be your provider and your sustainer instead of God himself. Power. You don't like money for the things that it can buy. You like money for the people that flock to you and the things that you can get people to do because of the money all of these things are good. Money, your body, they're all good. But if made into something ultimate, they can ultimately enslave you. 
your relationships. Now, this is where it gets tricky. So it might be being liked by all. You want everybody to like you. And so you never are willing to enter into that conflict with your family, with your spouse, with your friend that you need to in order to take it to a next level. This is me. And this can absolutely drive you mad if you, if you have to have everybody like you. And it can stunt your ability to share your faith with people. It can stunt your ability to really heal your family. Romantic love. You think, if I could just find that person, everything in here would be fixed. That person that completes me. But guess what? They're not going to complete you. Ask a married couple. They might help you, they might love you, but they're not going to complete you. Only God can handle that kind of a weight. Marriage. Marriage can absolutely become an idol. It's such a good thing, but it can so quickly turn into an idol. And then your children. We already talked about it with Isaac. Fixing all of your hope on this child, all of your identity on being a parent. Don't crush the child. You'll always feel like a failure. Now, I want to talk about this marriage thing real quick because I think this is the trickiest one. And I want for us to imagine that Abraham said, I'm going to worship Sarah. She's going to be my ultimate source of identity. Now, think about what happens in the next chapter. It's this very tender moment where Abraham buries his wife. And if you were looking for your ultimate identity from your spouse... Imagine what it would like, be like to be Abraham. If he was looking for his ultimate identity from her, he would be standing over her and say, Sarah, save me. Give me ultimate meaning. Could she help him? No. So even the best things in life can become idols. And maybe God's right here and this person's right here and it's so easily you can begin to say, I want, I want, to make peace in my marriage before I really want to follow after God. Do you see what I'm saying? Idols can crop up in any aspect of our life, and it's when we take good things and turn them into ultimate things. So the question is, what do you worship? What's the, what are the little G gods in your life? How do you know? Well, first off, I want to say that If God asked you to give it up, would you be willing to? Whatever it is, would you be willing to give up whatever that is on the board? If not, it might be an idol. Now, God might not be calling you to give it up, but he is calling you to deal with it. Now, certainly, he's not calling us to give up marriage or give up children or give up hope for romantic love. That's not what I'm saying. Not everybody shouldn't be single and sad. But what I am saying is that if this person is a God in your life, bigger than God in your life, God wants that. He doesn't want you to be enslaved by that anymore. So offer it to him. Because God is the only one that can truly satisfy us. He's the only one that can take the weight of being God in our life. Does that make sense? So we need to identify our idols, and I want this week, here's the challenge. I, wanna, I want you to ask God, who or what 
have I been making an idol out of in my life? What good thing have I been turning into an ultimate thing? And then I want you to start talking to God about it. I want you to to look at this and pick one. If you're like, I got six. I got about six, but I'm going to pick one. Pick one and pray about it. But I don't want you to just pray about it. I don't want it to just be a thought exercise for you. I want you to talk to somebody about it this week. Don't wait till next week because you'll probably forget what I preached about this past week. This week, I want you to talk to somebody. It could be your spouse. It could be a close friend who's safe. And I want you to share, I think that I've had an unhealthy relationship with this thing or this person. And spouses, friends in the room, if they open up to you, try not to give advice, try not to come down hard on them, just listen. Listen in love. So what are you worshiping? It's the most important question in your life. So that is the altar. And Abraham, in faith, offers his son up, offers what could have been a God to God. And God wants to place everything on the altar. So what about the sacrifice? This is the second half of the sermon, but it's only going to be like three minutes, so don't worry. Um, What about the sacrifice? What happens in Abraham's story? Let's go back to that freeze frame. Abraham's hand is reached up. He took the knife to slaughter his son. And the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. And you can hear the urgency in the angel's voice saying, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham passed the test. And then, listen, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide As it said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So we've seen the altar. Now what's the sacrifice? It's not Isaac. God wants us to offer those things to him. But the ultimate sacrifice, we don't, it's, the gospel isn't, well, we have to sacrifice and then God will be good to us. That's religion. It's if I can do enough, then God will be good to me. The gospel is that God is good to me and that elicits my desire to give him everything. So what's the sacrifice? The reason this passage has always been so strong, strong and, and um, such a challenge for me has been how could God ever ask a man to sacrifice his only son? Well, guess what? For you, for me, that's exactly what God did for us. He took his only son and sacrificed him to set us free. You see, Jesus is the ram. He's caught in the thicket, the thorns of sin, our sin, and he was sacrificed for us. Think about it. On that same Mount Mount Moriah, same piece of land. Pieces of wood were laid on the Son of God's back as he was walked up a hill. And then he was laid on those pieces of wood 
and pierced. Why? So that we could be free. To set us free from our sin, set us free from our need to get significance from everywhere else but God, to set us free. God gave everything to you so you can give everything back to him. And then on the third day, in our story we read that on the third day, Abraham offered his son and his son came back to him alive. And we know that on the third day, God overcame death in the grave by raising his son back to life, giving us eternal life. That is the good news, that God has offered everything to us so we can offer everything back to him. And so what I would encourage you to do is don't offer anything to God yet. If you're not sure that he's offered everything to you, go back to the gospel. Go back to what he's done for you and let that propel you to give to him whatever it is. But here's the thing. If you decide to step out in faith like Abraham did, lay that thing upon the altar, whatever it is, that person upon the altar, Here's the, the, the mystery of the gospel. It's, 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 it's too good to be true that somehow when we give things to God, he'll give them back to us, but in a restored fashion. He'll give us a right relationship with money. He'll give us a right relationship with our body. He'll give us a right relationship with our kids. He'll give us a right relationship with our spouse. But if we're trying to hold on to it, It's going to enslave us, but if we give it to him, he will give it back to us restored. So this week, what are you worshiping? And consider that he has given everything to you so that we can give everything back to him. Let's pray.